the last time the CO2 was higher than it is today and mammals didn't even exist and the insects did really well with the very high CO2 but you had things like cockroaches you know the size of city golfs and things so um, dragonflies with wingspans of two meters so we really don't want to go back to a high CO2 world like let's not you know If you are South African, chances are history haunts you every day. That's why we're such a light-hearted bunch. So today's question is, where would you say our problems really begin? Was it 2007 when Zuma triumphed at Polokwane? No, maybe 1948 when the Nats came into power and began to formally design apartheid. You could make an argument for the 1913 Land Act, which stripped black South Africans of their property. Maybe we've got to go further back into history. What about 1886, when gold was first discovered on the Witwatersrand, turning modern-day Gauteng into the world's biggest capitalism magnet? Aha! 1652, I hear you cry. Well, let's not stop there. Let's go back 2,000 years to the year, um, 19, when Khoisan first settled on what is today the Cape Peninsula. Let's go back even further. What about Littlefoot, whose fossils were found in the Stadtfontein Caves in the 90s? Littlefoot was supposed to be about 2.5 million years old. Far back enough in our history? Okay, what about the giant plant-eating dinosaur named Ledumahari Mafube, which is Sasutu for a giant thunderclap at dawn? They found that dinosaur outside Vereesburg and Clarence in the Free State a few months ago. That South African dinosaur weighed 12 tons and stood about 4 meters high at the hips, the single largest land animal alive on Earth when it lived 190 million years ago. Is that far back enough? My guest today is interested in going back even further into South Africa's history than that. Her name is Dr. Robin Pickering, and she's a lecturer in the Department of Geological Sciences at the University of Cape Town. She's a geologist, an archaeologist, a paleontologist, and I feel it's necessary to add a fan of this podcast. She's also a Johannesburger and a great interview. So let's get straight into it. I phoned up Dr. Pickering in Cape Town to ask her about paleontology, rocks, and South Africa billions and billions of years ago, when the planet was at the earliest stages of giving birth to life as we know it. Dr. Robin Pickering, thank you for being on the commute. It's really a pleasure, Jessica. I'm looking forward to this. Okay, so let's start at the very beginning. Let's go back millions, maybe even billions of years. Can, can I ask you to paint me a picture? Tell me what the world was like, or maybe what South Africa was like, millions and millions and millions of years ago. Was it hot? Was there cloud cover? Was there oxygen? Were there plants? What did it look like? Okay, so this is like the best question you could ask a geologist, and I could probably talk for the next 12 hours in answering your question. But what I will do is I'm going to zoom back. I'm going to zip you back to 2.6 billion years ago. So um, in Johannesburg, where um, we both grew up, the area around Joburg would have been um, a large, shallow inland sea, and there was no oxygen in the atmosphere, and there were no plants or animals on the earth. So the earth would have been, the bits of um, land that they were would have been pretty bare, so lots of rocks, and this big, shallow inland sea. And in this inland sea, the only life forms were little photosynthetic bacteria, kind of pond scum. And these little guys were living in the shallow water, 
and photosynthesizing and creating the oxygen, which would later go on to oxygenate the atmosphere. And while they were living in this kind of quite rich, productive um, sea, they were building the rocks, the limestone rocks that eventually would become the dolomites, which we today, in just outside Johannesburg, we have the cradle of, of humankind, and those caves are hosted in these dolomite rocks. And it's in rocks of a similar age that we get the gold-bearing deposits that the reason Johannesburg is there at all. So um, that's one snapshot back in time. So we go all the way back to Johannesburg as sort of a swamp, and you're saying that that's actually where the gold that make the Vitvatusrand you know, this famous gold seam, that's where it dates back to. Yes. So the gold is even older. It's more like if you can get your head around three billion years old. And um, yes, so again, this was the another one of these big, shallow kind of inland sea with distant mountains, probably over towards where um, in Pumalanga and Barberton is today. They would have been quite high, gold-rich mountains with these massive, huge rivers draining off them and um, literally washing the gold into this um, big inland sea. And those rocks built up over time, and those are the rocks that today we um, mine for the gold. And, you know, the reason Johannesburg is where it is, and we have a resource-based economy and all of that, today can go back to three billion years ago. Okay, so when you paint a picture like that, I actually start to get really excited about what we're going to talk about today. Um, but let me introduce you a little bit to our listeners first. You're a lecturer at the at UCT, um, but you trained as a geologist and an archaeologist. But you say that you sort of have leanings towards paleontology yes. or you're drawn towards paleontology. But could you just talk to our listeners about what's the difference between those three disciplines? What's geology? What's archaeology? What's paleontology? You no, know, you're starting to sound like my mom when I was in first. Yeah. yeah. Great. That's what every woman <laughs> wants to hear, Robin. <laughs> so straight up, geology is the study of rocks and how the earth works and how rocks form. And archaeology is the study of past civilizations and past um, people, basically. And it's, we call it their material culture, the things that people live, leave behind. So that can be, you know, broken pottery or stone tools. And we study this past record of people in order to understand how people lived in the past. So archaeology is very much about people. And then paleontology is the study of past life, like the paleo is kind of past and the ology, you know, is the study of. So it's the study of past life, which can be very broad. So those little microorganisms that I was talking about that made the um, limestones and the dolomites could study tiny little trace fossils like that from billions of years ago all the way through the history of life on earth you know dinosaurs all the way up to kind of modern human and our early human ancestors and would all fall under the kind of umbrella of studying paleontology so i guess i went off to university with kind of vague aspirations of wanting to be a paleoanthropologist and study human origins but as an undergraduate was more or less restricted to picking topics that actually, you know, existed in the timetable and did geology and archaeology and loved both this kind of study of the past. Um, and I was most drawn to the geological aspects, the kind of rocks, which I just loved, and I had collected rocks my whole life. So it, it kind of made sense for me. Um, but the application of my geological skills, basically, to paleontological problems is where my 
I suppose, research interests really lie. So you can't actually just study paleontology. It's just a term that lay people like me here in the media, you know, you hear a media announcements from paleontologists or Homer and a lady has been found, etc. But you couldn't actually go to WITS or UCT and study paleontology. No, not as an undergraduate um, and not straight up, not in first year. So you need to do a kind of general science degree um, and major in something like geology or biology would be a good combination. Um, and it's only later at an honors or master's level that you can begin to specialize and kind of zoom in and become a paleontologist. Great. Now, like any young person who is talented and wants to become the best in her field, you you left South Africa um, after your studies and you, you went overseas to, I presume, and I'm, you know, I'd like you to tell us about a bit about it, you know, really explore this field and, and become an expert. And you ultimately ended up in a laboratory in Melbourne, Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about that journey? Yes, of course. So I had grown up in Johannesburg and um, wanted I yeah, had these kind of vague aspirations of working in human evolution and was drawn to WITS. Obviously, it's the place to do this. But by the end of my master's, I was, um, I guess, really ready for a bit of a change of scene and some new challenges. And um, I knew then already that the skills I needed to do the kind of research I wanted were really not well developed in South Africa. And in order to gain them, I really needed to leave. And I was also up for the kind of adventure of going somewhere new. Mm. So I had met Professor Jan Kramers, who at that stage was at the University of Bern in Switzerland. And through that collaboration, I um, went straight from Johannesburg to Bern, which was quite a shock for me. But I spent four years in Switzerland doing a PhD which was tough, but I absolutely loved it. And it was a wonderful opportunity. And from Switzerland, I then went on, yes, to the University of Melbourne in Australia, where I spent six years as a postdoc um, in Professor John Woodhead's lab, which was also an amazing experience. And I feel like I learned almost a second PhD worth of kind of knowledge and skills and also how to kind of organize myself as a researcher. And it was only quite late during that phase that I really called it and was like, I want to be an academic. But during this process, you were learning quite a specific, um, I mean, many skills, but you were learning quite a specific technique, which which has come to shape a lot of your career. So everyone who's watched like CSI or Bones or even Young Sheldon has heard of carbon dating. From what I understand, carbon dating is, is small fry. It only goes back 50,000 years or so, whereas you've developed or have, is it you who has developed a uranium-led technique? And now I just associate uranium with like nuclear reactors and Homer Simpson. <laughs> but mm. tell us more about the uranium-led technique and why it's different. Yeah, so I suppose I have to kind of preface this that I, I certainly did not develop the technique at all. Uranium-led dating is one of the fundamental techniques used in geology to work out how old rocks are. And the, the kind of primary work that we're building on goes all the way back to Marie Curie and the discovery of radioactivity. So I'm certainly, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants making kind of small adjustments. Um, so, yeah, my research and what I left South Africa to do was to learn, how, was to learn this uranium-led dating technique, which, as you said, is um, – most people are, are familiar with carbon dating and that uranium lead dating is, is analogous to carbon dating in that instead of using carbon, we're using the um, element uranium. 
And um, uranium has a longer half-life than carbon, so we can date rocks that are much, much older. And in fact, we can date rocks that are even billions of years old. So the reason we know the Earth is 4.6 billion years old is from uranium-lead dating. So it's a very well-established and well-understood technique. And in fact, the challenge with uranium-lead dating is applying it to rocks that are young. And by young, I mean, you know, kind of less than maybe five million years old, <laughs> which for geologists is young. I know it's like all sorts of jokes about dating teenagers that are rocks and, <laughs> and the jokes are endless. And this is because, again, the half-life of uranium. So a half-life is a measure of how quickly a radioactive element decays mm. and uranium decays very slowly. And so in only five million years, it's quite difficult for us to be able to measure the lead, which is the daughter isotope. So you've got like a mom who's the uranium, which decays over a known at a known rate and um, becomes basically this new element, which is lead. And if we measure the amount of uranium today and the amount of lead today, we know the rate of the decay and we can work out the age. But if only a few, only, only a few million years has gone by, the amount of lead is very small. So that was the challenge, is to measure this very small amount of lead. Okay. And so my PhD research was kind of focused on how best to do this and to apply the technique to very young rocks. And this technique was not available in South Africa? Um, it had been previously, but the, the laboratory facilities in order, so there's more lead in a fingerprint than in these young samples. So you need a state-of-the-art laboratory. And you also, more than that, you need a critical mass of people doing the research. And when I was leaving South Africa, no, there was no kind of active research environment for me to do the work here. So to master the technique, you had to go and spend time with these sort of international experts and, and really get on top of it. Yes, Yes, and spend hours um, myself in the laboratory rather than just being a visitor. And this is often something that happens with South African students is that you just kind of helicopter in somewhere and spend a brief time as a visitor, which I had experienced, but I didn't want to continue doing that. I wanted to become a real expert and, you know, sleep on the laboratory floor if that's what it took. Um, and so that was why I yeah, left to become embedded in the system somewhere else. Okay, so I want to try and connect it back to the paleontology side of things. I mean, South Africa's really proud of and has an international reputation for its extraordinary finds of early human or hominin fossils, um, particularly around Marapeng, the cradle of humankind, and the Sterkfontein Caves just outside Johannesburg. Um, mm. I'm thinking about the discovery of like Mrs. Plays and Littlefoot or Homo Naledi in sort of 2013, 2015, just, just as a lay person who sort of has these pop into my consciousness. Um, but which aspect of these, uh, of these finds are you most interested in in your research? Is it the rocks that they're found in? Is it the actual fossils? What grabs your fancy? Yeah, so the, I mean, the fossils are beautiful, but um, yes, I think my, um, and this is why I am a geologist, kind of first and foremost is that it's the rocks that really do it for me um and one of the most critical pieces of the kind of puzzle of understanding um any fossil but particularly the new discoveries like homo sediba and homo naledi and littlefoot is how old they are so we can kind of fit them into our human family tree and figure out you know who's related to who what does this fossil actually mean you need to know how old it is and so you can't date the bones directly. They're too old for something like carbon dating. And so the, your best current bet is to date the rocks around them. 
And so my PhD research adapting this uranium lead technique was specifically to adapt it to the type of rocks that we find in the caves in South Africa. And that if we could get the technique to work on these rocks, which are called flowstones, so you get stalagmites, stalactites, these rocks that form in caves. And the flowstones are the ones that form and literally flow along the floor of the cave. And we find that these flowstones kind of sandwiched in between the um, rocks which have the fossils in them. And if we can date the flowstones, then we can um, work out how old the fossils are that are kind of sandwiched in between the datable layers. And if we can do that, then we can work out, you know, and fit these fossils back into our human family tree. So that explains why when we were preparing for this interview, you were telling me that flowstones are really what gets you excited. That's what a flowstone is. Yeah, we have all sorts of fancy definitions. And I often say, if you remember one thing about um, a presentation or a conversation with me, it needs to be flowstones. Stalactites that like drip down from the cave, stalagmites grab from the bottom, and the flowstones flow kind of along the floor of the cave. What are you working on right now? You know, what's captured your imagination? And, and also, why do you think it's important? After a long history of working on um, the caves, particularly in the cradle of humankind, but kind of, I guess, off the back of the success of that, I've worked on cave deposits from all over the world. And they are fantastic. And the technique went from being experimental to one which we can apply pretty routinely. Um, I've only met one flowstone ever that I couldn't date. Ooh, um, all right. So it was like you're elusive. <laughs> Do you dream about that flowstone at night? You're just like, I have um, to date that one. No, it's the one that got away and yeah, that dating relationship never got off to a good start. Oh, it didn't deserve you anyway, that flowstone. <laughs> and part of the part of what really drew me to it and part of the necessary kind of obsession to do the work and finish a PhD, I think was because everyone told me that it was impossible and that we'd never be able to date mm. the caves in South Africa and that it was impossible. And I think that's that's what kept me up at night was the you know, doing trying to solve this impossible puzzle. But now that it's reached a stage that it's really routine, um, I guess my focus is shifting a little bit to other types of rocks that are similar to the cave rocks but don't form in caves. Um, and there's incredible um, fossil and archaeological sites all over the country in South Africa out of caves, and they um, really desperately need better age control and better dating. And it's that that's really capturing my imagination at the moment. So it's not just, we, we just hear endlessly about Maraping and the, the cradle of humankind, but you're saying there are other sites. Someone was saying that the Karoo is a really amazing place for this sort of research as well. Is that accurate? Yes, the um, fossil record and sediment, so kind of rock and fossil record from the Karoo is um, unparalleled. There's nowhere else in the world for that time period that we have such a detailed record of the evolution of life on Earth. It's really incredible. Um, for me personally, the rocks are a little bit too old. I prefer my rocks a bit younger. <laughs> Um, but they are um, incredible sites, you know, up the west coast from Cape Town, in up in the Northern Cape, there's an incredible rich record of things like the evolution of early modern humans in South Africa from these open air sites. And figuring out how to date those is what um, my new kind of obsession is. And why do you think it's important that we have a sense of where we came from and where planet Earth came from? I mean, what can we learn from it? 
I think it gives us a sense of perspective. And um, in our changing world, which we've talked about a lot, but I think we are really living climate change now. And in the last kind of 18 months, um, we are really seeing, you know, the very cold winters in Europe, the blisteringly hot summers in Australia, the snowstorms in the US, the um, water crisis in Cape Town. You know, we're actually living climate change. And so understanding how our natural systems work and respond. So the climate has changed in the past and not on the scale and not with the speed that humans are changing it now. But it's very important to be able to study these past changes, particularly with the kind of intersection of archaeology where we can look at how um, our ancestors coped with things like ice ages and what the environment in South Africa was like. So I guess just in terms of providing some context in our rapidly changing world, it is very important to understand what happened in the past. That's actually a detour I'd love to take because one of the things that I do find so frustrating um, in the conversation around climate change and climate change denialists is this idea that we've had ice ages or very hot periods uh, through the whole history of planet Earth going back millions of years, and that what we're currently experiencing is just another one of those heating up periods which might be followed by an ice age. Mm. But on the other hand, if you follow even basic science, and I would only claim to follow basic science, there is this, they've declared this new epoch, which is the Anthropocene, which is that man's, um, I mean, I'm explaining to you your whole field, that, that the idea <coughs> yeah, that yeah, man's no, impact is, is being seen on the planet. So just talk to, yeah. talk to me a little bit or talk to us a little bit about how does climate change fit into that history? And is, is it just another warming up phase? And why is this not actually... True. So, no, it's not just another warming up phase. And another popular narrative of the kind of skeptics is that um, the scientific community can't agree on this, which is also not true. There's really no disagreement among the scientific community that the planet is warming from the extra um, CO2, particularly in the atmosphere. And we can, by looking at the actual, so, you know, CO2 is carbon and oxygen. And by looking at the actual carbon atoms of the CO2, they carry a fingerprint of where they are from. And you can trace the whole carbon cycle by looking at the carbon isotopes. And we actually know without a shadow of a doubt that the extra carbon in the atmosphere is from the burning of fossil fuels because they have a very specific carbon signal. And we know that it's us burning the fossil fuels. And the thing which we should all be frightened of is the rate of change. So the Earth has changed and it has been warmer than it is today and there has been more CO2 in the atmosphere than today. But the rate of change was on a scale of tens of thousands to even hundreds of thousands of years, not since 1950. <laughs> and it's this rate of change that is unprecedented and is this kind of terrifying global experiment that we are kind of plunging headlong into. So, um, yeah, climate scientists are, you know, frightened with good reason. Yeah. Well, thank you for that explanation, because I think it's just really useful to speak to someone who, who you know, who has witnessed all these effects on the planet's crust and the planet's core and the planet's rocks and, and can actually sort yes. of say it's, it's not just another phase. There's something extraordin and extraordinary happening right now. And another thing, the last time the CO2 was higher than it is today, they weren't like um, mammals didn't even exist. And the insects did really well with the very high CO2. 
but you had things like cockroaches, you know, the size of city golfs and things. So um, dragonflies with wingspans of two meters. So we really don't want to go back to a high CO2 world. Like, let's not, you know, um, the life adapted to that much higher CO2, but on a much longer time scale. And personally, I really could not deal with cockroaches the size of cars. Yes, I'm, I'm kind of stuck on that. I don't think I heard everything you said after the cockroach the size of the city yes. golf. So um, right. thank you for that image. That's, if, uh... if you need that to motivate you to ride your bike more, <laughs> let that be your motivation. Recycle now because the cockroaches are coming. Oh, my God. <laughs> Um, I, I wanted to turn to a different sort of aspect of, of being a scientist in, in 2019. And when, when I think about paleontology in South Africa, the names that come to mind are like Philip Tobias or Lee Berger, Robert Broom. Um, and there's no doubt that the discipline, well, frankly, it just seems like a bit of a boys club. Um, there aren't any sort of yes. names that pop, pop up to mind of, of women. What's your experience been as a woman in this particular field? Yeah, not an entirely positive one. Um, yes, and as a geologist, of course, so I'm coming at human evolution kind of out of geology, which I joke about being rocks for jocks, but it's not really a joke, and it's definitely the um, kind of history of these disciplines is very male-dominated. Um, so, yes, it's not always been a very welcoming kind of research space either. Uh, our attitudes towards women in science or STEM more broadly? Um, I mean, do you think they're changing enough? Yeah, I suppose in terms of a broad answer, things are changing. You know, the kind of winds of change are blowing in that, um, yeah, just by kind of change in general in our student bodies and there's there's more space for everybody kind of in research and even historically very male-dominated fields like geology and human evolution, there are certainly, there's more diversity opening up. Um, to answer your question, I think, so there is change. Of, of, I feel obliged to say, of course, there's not enough. And we would love to see more um, diversity, not just from women, but from everybody, so that these disciplines are more representative of South Africa. And yeah, paleoanthropology in particular is very dominated by um, kind of old white men at the end of the day. And mm. the space is ripe mm. for kind of um, making it more inclusive and kind of changing the face of this research in South Africa. Um, exactly how we do that is complicated and I certainly don't have easy answers, but it is changing and it's an exciting time um, to be in science in South Africa. And I see it with my students, you know, my um, student classes um, almost perfectly represent the demographics of South Africa, but that doesn't quite translate yet through to the academics, which is where the problem lies really. But I suppose these students will have a Dr. Pickering, which you didn't have, who is a, a senior female scientist who's an expert in her field to, to sort of model and, and maybe support and encourage them. Yes, I, I hope so. I mean, that is something I think about a lot as well. And I do sometimes say to my students when they are grumbling about transformation, I, I do say to them, well, at least you have me, you know. I also have two small children, so I can kind of you know, the working mum balancing act is my lived experience. So I can um, bring that as an example as well. Um, but yes, and I'd certainly at least 
and we can have more open conversations about things. I mean, I've had all sorts of experiences from, you know, being mansplained in the field by colleagues where I'm the only actual geologist out of a team of five other archaeologists, and they spend the whole morning explaining the rocks to me. That has happened um, very recently. And I know as a um, PhD yeah, right. As a PhD student, um, you know, really no one took me very seriously at all. And I used to take my dad with me as my um, field assistant for company and also just for some kind of moral support. And people used to greet him and assume that he was the geologist doing the field work and that I was his assistant. Um, and I mean, I could go on and on about this. Um, but yes, I really hope and I'm really passionate about using my um, voice that I have now, I guess, as that student, I didn't have a voice to kind of fight back and say, no, I'm the geologist. Thank you very much. But to use my voice now to kind of have these conversations um, and make the study of human evolution in South Africa a more inclusive and diverse diverse space. Mm -hmm. You came back from Australia recently to UCT and you walked back in, if I understand correctly, just as the fees must fall protests, that whole time of tumult in South African campuses was really kicking off in a big way. Yes. Having been outside of the system for a while, outside of the country for a while, what's your impression been about this political moment and what it means? Well, let's just start for what it might mean for UCT science, but, but for universities yeah. or, or the country generally. Yes, it was quite something to have left, you know, the world's most livable city and, you know, kind of sip my last flat white and then explode back into <laughs> tertiary education. Pretty sure Cape Town has a good flat white though, Dr. Pickering. Yeah. Yeah. We can, we can discuss coffee <laughs> or it, coffee on UCT campus is another whole podcast. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, but yes. And to kind of explode back into tertiary education in South Africa. I mean, we arrived back in Cape Town kind of weeks after they took the statue down at UCT and it was quite, Confronting one of my wonderful undergraduate students said the most difficult thing about the protests is that you confront yourself, you know, and you confront your own kind of privilege and bias. And so it was confronting to kind of parachute back into this. Um, and I guess perhaps as a disclaimer, I also had a baby in 2016. So I was on maternity leave for the kind of middle of the protest years at UCT. So I wasn't, I didn't experience the, yeah, the, the protests in their entirety. I was off campus for one of And also the physical experience of the, of the protests. Yes, I had. People describe it in very physical terms. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I had a lecture um, interrupted by protesters. And so in 2017, I was back at the coalface. Um, so yes, it was confronting, but, um, I don't know. I felt that it was also very important and to almost the, not the actual protests, which were destructive and quite damaging to the kind of university community, but what certainly at UCT, the, um, atmosphere of change that's come post the protest, I think is exciting and the transformation um, discussion. I mean, even in my field, which has been very, you know, rocks for jocks, very white male dominated for a long time. And now suddenly it's all opened up that we can have discussions about, um, you know, there's space for these different discussions. And so 
yeah, I don't know how many of my colleagues would agree with me and share my sentiment, but I actually think it's exciting. And even coming back from overseas and coming back into tertiary education, um, it took me a while to kind of get up to speed and kind of catch my breath. But I'm excited to be back and to be in, yeah, to be part of this um, change, basically, that's happening. It's refreshing to hear people speaking about the tertiary education space with energy and vigor. So that's pretty cool. It strikes me that paleontology might be a bit of a fraught topic for some South Africans, and that's because of the role that the pernicious racist trope of insisting that black Africans are less involved, that Europeans or closer to monkeys still plays in our society. I mean, it's a bizarrely resilient manifestation of white supremacist thinking. Yeah. It just never seems to go away. No. Um, we still see it cropping up frequently in South African public life. But it's also one that's caused enormous psychological harm and personal injury for black South Africans. Um, so do you come across the intersection between this abusive narrative and your subject? And how do you deal with that? Um, yes. I mean, the answer is yes. And if if I'm on an airplane and the person sits, sitting next to me asks me what I do, I, I do not say I work on human evolution in South Africa because yeah, you, it's such a fraught topic and it's not a conversation I normally want to have on a long distance flight. And I know I have learned that the hard way. Mm. Um, but I think so, yes, I have come across it and it's this kind of horrible reality of South Africa. But I think, um, and as someone who studies human evolution, I think it's one we can't shy away from. And I think it's we basically have a responsibility as the scientists to be scientists and to use our evidence-based science to basically tackle this head on. And we can deconstruct these narratives actually very easily. And um, my colleague at um, UCT, Professor Becky Ackerman, has a lovely lecture on this, which I shamelessly stole from her and um, give to my first year students. And we talk about um, skin color and um, the amount of melanin in your skin and how this is the amount of melanin in your personal skin today is reflective of where your ancestors lived and how much UV light they were exposed to and how the melanin comes or goes to protect you, either to give you more um, UV if you live in places, high latitude places like Northern Europe, for example, or if you live in more equatorial places with a lot of UV, you have to quickly evolve darker skin to protect you. And so we can deconstruct this with the kind of evidence-based science um, and then talk about how our skin color is actually this what tells this wonderful story of our ancestry and that we actually and we can find wonderful common ground instead of using it to be divisive. And I think this is important to do in the university space with the first years and to just tackle this straight on and have the difficult conversations. And then more broadly in the kind of public discourse, this is again where we can tackle this horrible racism and divisive narrative um, as scientists. And um, yes, I believe we have a kind of public responsibility to um, yeah, bring the kind of facts to this and take away the kind of emotive nastiness with evidence-based science. Yes. And, and defanging some of it by just talking about it, frankly, and talking about you know colonial-based racist tropes and, and what they do to people on a daily basis. Yeah. Really yes, great. exactly. And by going the further back in time we go, you know, the more commonality we actually have and these deep shared origins that can be a starting point for um, looking at the kind of diversity today through a different light um, and the horrible, you know, 
we've evolved from monkeys just take and i just again we do a whole lecture on this and we just take it straight down it's like no 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 we share a common primate ancestry that goes back you know 65 million years we are not evolved from monkeys and so to kind of really just take the bull by the horns and discuss it straight up and and try and answer the questions that the students have and to equip them with the replies so that they too can go out and have these discussions I'm really so heartened to hear that. So that's one of the changes you're talking about. So just that there'll be an early conversation in people's undergraduate degree and say, this is the science, but we happen to live in a society with this um, racism problem and racist history. And this is how the two, um, these two bodies of knowledge talk to each other. Yes, exactly. And um, use the kind of teaching space to basically teach the students to be critical of both. You know, we are teaching in the science faculty, we you know, it's not just kind of shoving facts into the students. We're teaching them, training them to be critical thinkers and to evaluate things critically. So they need to evaluate the science critically and they also need to evaluate the kind of um, narratives and discourse and be able to say, well, how can I answer this? And to give them the, you know, evidence-based answers to that, but also to train them to be critical of the whole thing, you know. Dr. Pickering, thank you so much for your time. As we come to the end, if our listeners want to learn a little bit more about paleontology or geology or just the field that you're sort of passionate about, are there any books or resources that you'd recommend that they go and seek out? Yes. So I'm actually a massive fan of your podcast and I know you often ask your guests this and um, so I'm totally prepared for this. <laughs> yes. Um, so I have three books for your listeners. So the first is called Darwin's Hunch by um, Krista um, Kuljian, and I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. And Darwin's Hunch is a um, wonderful book on the history of paleoanthropological research in South Africa. So it's an, an, a cracking read. She writes beautifully, and it's, but it's confronting, and it talks about the um, kind of institutional racism in South African paleoanthropology. But it's, if people are interested about this, that, that is the text to read. And then um, the, my other book is by – it's not so much specifically about um, fossils or human evolution – but it's called Lab Girl by um, a scientist called Hope Jaron. And it's um, mainly a an autobiography of her experience as a scientist, as a woman in science, as a mother in science, and um, also about the kind of evolution of um, science and a kind of what a research career looks like. So it's a really lovely book. And I, um, you know, I laughed, I cried. I, it's my top read from 2018. And then finally, I hear rumors that our retired VC from UCT, Max Price, is writing a book about the protests at UCT and his account of that time. So that would be a book to look out for, because I think we all need to read as much as we can and be informed from kind of different sources about what happened during those years. And that will be something to look out for. Listeners, I'll put links to all of these uh, resources in the show notes. Um, although obviously if Max Price's book is not out yet, I will <laughs> have to find the Amazon placeholder page. <laughs> um, and that just leaves me to say, Dr. Pickering, thank you so much for your time. It's been um, absolutely fascinating. I could talk to you all day, but um, then our listeners probably won't download the podcast. It's so. an absolute pleasure um, as always. And yeah, I really enjoyed speaking with you. Thank you for interviewing me that's it for today you can visit dr pickering's website at robinpickering.com that's robin with a y robinpickering.com 
and you can visit thecommute.co.za to hear more episodes. thecommute.co.za